Hello, and thank you for listening to the Microbit Feed Podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody really writes it down. There's no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Professor Andrew Page. Nabil is the head of informatics at the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK. And Andrew is the director of technical innovation for Theogen in Cambridge, UK. I am Dr. Lee Katz, and I'm a senior bioinformatician at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta in the United States. Hello, everyone. Today, uh, Andrew and I are, are hosting Nabil is Out. You might have noticed our new intro. I guess we might tell you more about that later. But right now, Andrew has just come out with a new paper on using GPT with, with publications, and we thought we might want to riff on that a little bit. Yeah, thanks, Lee. Yeah, so just the other day, I brought out an editorial on basically the use of uh, ChatGPT and AI in microbiogenomics and in the journal. And it's kind of interesting was this came about simply because I was at a hackathon, right, that I organized in Cambridge there uh, in May and sitting beside a guy called Sam Shepard, who uh, is, is editor of Microbial Genomics. And we're just chatting away about actually chat GPT and the use in journals and basically how it's coming. You know, everyone's going to be using it and we have to think about it. And so then I went and asked ChatGPT, well, what do you think about the ethical considerations of this, you know, in scholarly publication? And it went and told me, and I was like, actually, that's pretty good. And so maybe we can discuss it, you know? So basically the overall editorial is, uh, the structure of it is that we have a human intro. So it's artisanal, you know, it's handcrafted, like, uh, you know, these really expensive crafts you buy at a farmer's market. And then the rest of it is AI generated. And it's quite an interesting way to do it. But I guess overall, it is something, it's a challenge we're going to have to consider. And yeah, what do you think, Lee? I was reading your paper and I thought it was really awesome. I noticed, by the way, you, you used GPT to, to, make this up, to make the paper, but I did not see a GPT co-author on there. I did actually in the original version and in the editorial manager, I did put in ChatGPT as a, an author, as last author actually. And it made it nearly all the way to the end. And then it was taken out by, you know, during copy editing. So I, I did try and get it in there. You know, I, I was going to try and appropriately acknowledge my, my AI author, co-author, but unfortunately it wasn't to be, but I guess you don't acknowledge the typewriters that are, you know, producing content it's just a machine in, in a way but I guess gender of AI is quite different it's a different ballgame and we don't really know what the answers are so can I can I quote a friend of the show so so when Danny Park was reading this he had a really great comic that just made me laugh he, he says that you probably well, I think he's indicating that the GPT author should be there and and then under conflicts of interest he says there should have been an extra line one of the authors is an AI and may have conflicts of interest regarding the ethical use of AI. <laughs> I think that should have been an acceptable way. Absolutely. I mean, it depends. Is this a real person or not? And well, you know, philosophically, maybe it kind of is, and or maybe will be in a few weeks. Who's to know? Um, 
But yeah, these are all things we don't really know the answers to, you know, uh, like, for example, should we be putting in prompts into supplementary material? That's kind of what two different people asked me. And I think actually, yeah, maybe, because the way you prompt uh, the, the AI, you, you can never get it, you know, it's generative, you can never get it to give you the same answers uh, over and over again, that will always kind of change it slightly. But maybe you should provide the prompts, and you need to provide all the intermediate prompts because people have done studies and found that actually if you get get the model to think first about the problem, then it gives a better answer, which is kind of weird. Like, so if you, like in this case, the prompts that I gave, I actually generated a podcast script for uh, another podcast to do uh, research pages uh, with my wife. And so I, it had generated the script and already taught about it. And then when I asked it to write a review for Microbiogenomics, the journal, it already had, I guess, formed an opinion and then it, I would hope it wrote a better review. It certainly looked good. And I did. it was a one-shot thing as well. It wasn't like I was there, you know, changing things and modifying things or whatever. It was just like, bang, 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 there you go. Actually, I did cheat slightly. I did tell it, you know, can you suggest a better prompt at the very beginning? And, and it did. It was very kind. It, you know, because obviously I, I don't know how to do prompts properly, but it does. It, it knows what it wants. That's interesting. So you prompted it to give a review of your podcast but then you said what would be a better prompt for that i prompted it to write the script for a podcast which then was read out by ai voices from 11 labs and then i asked it to write a review of the the area based on the podcast i also got it to write tweets with emojis describing the paper yes it's awesome it saves a lot of work like but I guess on, on bigger issues, like within scholarly publication, it is something we do need to confront head on because people are using this, whether you like it or not, people are using ChatGPT. And just earlier today, we were joking on, on Slack about, you know, it can write reviews for us, it'll be reviewing our papers. But actually, when I asked to try to review a critical review, highly critical review of one of my papers a couple of years ago, Rory, it did a very, you know, damning review you know it wasn't wasn't correct or all correct but it was like really you know the I, I don't curse in the podcast the real reviewer three type you know the in a bad mood old professor who's disgruntled with the world big chip on the shoulder and the kind of things that they would say in a review we've all had these in, in academia that's what it could replicate actually you, you showed me the review and I thought one of them in particular was a great example of an unfair review that still would have made my heart sink because I had to answer it. I'm not looking at it right now, but but it was the, the last point was like, will this be open source? Will this be put out there? And I'm sure in the paper you said that, but you still had to like convince an anonymous reviewer. Like it's still one more yeah. point. And I'm like, oh my God, this reviewer is so unfair. Absolutely. And are we going to get to the stage, you know, in a few weeks, few months where, you know, our paper is written by ChatGPT and then it goes in and the, the publishers are using AI reviewers as well to review them. And then, you know, it's kind of just two models talking to each other and us humans are just kind of standing on the sidelines watching. Yeah, I think we could get there. <laughs> yeah, and it is scary how quickly we are uh, going that direction. And also, if you consider that uh, finding academic reviewers to peer review papers is quite difficult, 
journals really do struggle to find them and that does delay a lot of papers but you could see for some of the kind of lower quality journals where they're they're more interested in volume and uh, open access charges than actually in you know quality and actual peer review you could see them bring that out you know and slipping it in and providing a, a reasonable looking review you know the the ones that you weigh but actually it's not real totally unethical i think but uh, i can see it happen yeah 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 do you think that people out there are using gpt to review now that you mentioned it oh i think they're using for anything involving text you know if if there's a bit of text being written it's probably someone out there is writing with gpt in some way but yeah we do need to figure out figure this all out you know there are things like say within universities what do people do you know, if a student uses GPT, is that a bad thing or not? Is it just like the, the modern calculator, as we said the other day? We do need to have policies and procedures in place. And then for academic research as a community, we do need to understand is, you know, what, what is the key information that's the key point of an academic publication? Is it to get across, you know, some results from an experiment and, and some ideas? Or is it all the extra fluff of, oh, well, I did a lit review and I evaluated it and you know against these different things and you know because if you think of a paper a lot of it's paper numbers and you know to to be honest it's often it can be kind of copy and paste kind of territory you know because you're copying and pasting in the same methods the same stuff that you do all the time or you're referencing back to them and then briefly summarizing them and that's kind of stuff that a, a model can do very very rapidly yeah, so do you want to get into to your paper? Because we're touching on ethics, and, and I know that you touched on yeah. ethics in your paper. Well, is it ethical to use AI? What do you think? Is it plagiarism? Because it's getting the data from somewhere, right? So clearly a human or someone else has written something, and it is ripping it off in some way, very deep in the model. It might be, you know, taking 20 different texts put together, but is that plagiarism? What do you think? I don't know. <laughs> I I don't know if I've formed a total opinion of this yet because it is taking in so much and it's it's practically making its own thing. I think when when it's obviously from a source, a set of sources that's so large, it's basically making its own thing and it's probably not unethical in terms of plagiarism because let's say you're let's say you come up with a topic that millions of people have had opinions about traffic lights or something where millions of people yeah. have, an, have a strong opinion. I'm sure that that has been written about millions of times on the internet. I'm sure that it's forming its own unique perspective somehow. But if you're talking about um, the use of Rory with Salmonella and Terica, you know, relatively few people have come up with that and maybe maybe some of those ideas are directly from the source and I, and I wouldn't know. Yeah, I know some authors have gone and done some analysis and they've, you know, kind of predicting next words and they have particularly unusual combinations of uh, uh, pairs and triples. And yeah, that, that they've been able to say, well, it, it appears to be basically ripped off from our text, from our books based on that which is kind of an interesting thing. Um, 
But more generally, is taking work that is produced by something else and passing it off as your own plagiarism in the same way that if you copied and pasted from Wikipedia without referencing the sources, is that plagiarism? That's a good question. So I put that kind of in the same category as Wikipedia. So for, for people as old as we are, you might remember going to college or university, as you say, and and like the librarians would caution you against using Wikipedia. Like that was always like one of the major topics. Don't use Wikipedia. You don't know where it comes from. Get to verify. Yeah. I feel like GPT is sort of in the same category. Like it doesn't even have the citations. Like where, well, so the, the, the main version of GPT doesn't, doesn't have the citations. So where do you get the, the research from? You have to, you have to back it up and, and research the primary sources. One thing I, I like about, for example, since, since I said it, one thing I like about the other GPTs, Bing and Google, they at least do an attempt to show you their sources. And I do appreciate that. When you use OpenAI, like you have no idea where it's getting stuff from. And if you ask it for a reference, it's going to generate a reference that looks good for you and it's going to be incorrect. Yeah. So I guess part of their problem is that they don't want people claiming that they've been ripped off. So they don't want to give the sources and don't want to disclose them. And, you know, it is known that certain data sets were used like Twitter and Reddit, but they wouldn't be the highest quality data sets in the world. You know, if, if you know what I mean, like there's a lot of, a lot of bad stuff on them, but they've also taken PubMed. So everything published with a CC by license before 2021 is in there, which is kind of cool because that's a lot of high quality scientific content that's there within the model and has hopefully made it even better. Yeah, so so we have we have the topic of, of ethical considerations like plagiarism. Do you wanna move on to another one of your major points in, in your paper? So. Yeah, so actually, for the, the audience, we're actually cheating here because we went and asked ChatGPT to give us the major points for review for for, uh, for this podcast, you know? So we are kind of cheating as well. So maybe we should have ChatGPT as a co-author for this, this co-host for this podcast episode. <laughs> Please, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we can redo that intro or at least or at least we'll change the, the outro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, okay, next topic that ChatGPT has recommended is best practices for using AI-generated content. And this is kind of interesting because how do you view it? Is it just a supportive tool in the same way that an IDE is a supportive tool or a syntax highlighter is a supportive tool? You know, these are these help you, but they're not actually doing the key piece of work. They're not replacing the human being or human being as a role that I would say. And it's actually just, it's just yet another tool to make our lives a little bit easier. But how should we be using it really? How should we be citing it? Should we be putting uh, every prompt uh, into the supplementary material that we use? You know, if you do um, systematic reviews in, in medicine, you'll always have the search terms you use in the databases and the date, you know, all these things so that people can go and, and replicate it if they, they felt like it. 
and you know it's very very precise and exact and saying you know this is how we did it and maybe we should be doing that although it is generative in nature so you won't get the same answer twice so that, that's a downside but at least you get in the right ballpark yeah actually if we if we went over the top to the extreme what are all the things that you need to cite the perfect GBT, like the random seed or seeds involved and, and the version that you used? Could could you ever like cite it and go over the top with, with every little bit? I don't think you could. I mean, it would just have to be people trust that you that you have faithfully replicated what has come out. And you, you know, you're not lying, basically. Because if you look at anything with chat GPT, it says down at the very bottom, you know, the date and the, the version, you know, and that changes regularly. So, and we we don't have access to that model on the back end, you know, we, we don't know what went in, we don't know what it is at this current exact state and time. We don't know, we've seen different functionality, you know, even in the stack. So some people, when they put in URLs, they can actually go and access stuff on the internet. But if you get other nodes, it can't. So there, you know, there even within the the ChatGPT interface that people use, there's variation, and it's it's all kind of hidden away. It, it's ironic that they say open AI because it is the absolute least open AI company that there is. It, yeah, isn't it? So like. If you can't cite the actual like over the top version of this, that the random seed, is it is it better for researchers, especially for for replication? Like if you're a reviewer, would you rather see like the offline versions so that you can replicate it yourself, like the Facebook one, or so so should we should we suggest or steer people towards something that's more reproducible? Well, I guess the problem at the moment is that this particular system is, you know, by far the best out there. And there's a lot of open source models coming along and, and uh, trying to get there as well. But they're having problems because they are being, you know, some of them are being sued by different companies because they are including uh, publicly available data sets that people have um, sucked in. And because they're all open and open source about everything, then you can say, oh, you're using my data set and uh, I didn't give you an explicit license to do that. And, you know, I'm going to sue you now because everyone sues everyone for everything. And so then, you know, you have that problem where it's a double-edged sword by being closed and, and locked down. You can actually come up with a better tool and better results at the end of the day than if you're really open. But even, you know, companies like Google who've vast quantities of compute available and vast technical knowledge aren't able at the moment to come up with a better product than the Microsoft and OpenAI. So the, these things realistically are, are billion dollar computations and not everyone can do them. What is interesting though is when they make the model smaller, you know, so they in like Stanford used to have Alpaca and they used like Llama from Meta, so Facebook, to train it and they use ChatGPT, you know, as well. And it's all this kind of basically models, training models, training models to get, you know, a small, really fast model that can do most of what you need. It's not perfect, but it does a lot. And maybe that's that's part of the way we will we'll go with it. Oh, have you seen Adobe's new image features where, you know, you can take an image and then tell it to fill out the rest of it, like you take the Mona Lisa and then you tell, well, so, you know, expand it and what is the background of the Mona Lisa? It's phenomenal. 
I love it. I've been seeing those Twitter feeds. So I've, yeah, I've seen the, the Mona Lisa or there are a few other famous paintings and they just, yeah, they expand. You can see the rest of the image is cool. But even, you know, like a, a kind of a top shot of a person with against colorful background as another and it's like, okay, well, you know, show this person with their hands in their pockets, show this person with blah, blah, blah. And it's all the different variants of expanding and filling in blanks. And it's like, this is insanely good. You know, we've gone from Photoshopping where, you know, you can see the glance, you know, a few years ago, oh, someone has put a head on that body to stunning, you know, things that are generated that just look absolutely amazing and absolutely believable. And from now on, you know, we're not going to be able to necessarily fully believe every image we see, or we, we couldn't for years anyway, but, you know, we'll have to be even more careful about the origins of different images that we're going to see online. And I guess that brings us to then the problems with scientific papers. And, you know, we've seen examples of people fiddling with scientific figures, you know, like basically, oh, you know, remove all the, basically the dodgy points in this plot, you know, give me a p-value of blah, and it can go and do it. It, you know, poor Elizabeth Bick, you know, won't be able to spot these because they'll be so precise. Yeah, it, it's, it's just a whole new world. Yeah, do you think that she's commented on that yet? Oh my gosh. Oh, I don't know. I hope she does. You know, is she, the way that she spots fraud uh, or potential problems in, in some papers is just by eyeballing the pictures and looking for patterns which, uh, or one of the ways she does is look for patterns which repeat um, and they shouldn't be repetitive within those images. So it's either an artifact of the image generation or someone has done something a bit naughty. And unfortunately, say, with with blots and things like that, people quite often, you know, are a bit lazy and they might go, oh, well, I'll just copy and paste in my controls or, oh, that experiment didn't work. I'll, I'll just do a bit of fiddling there. Or, you know, one of my mice died. I'll just chuck in another one, you know? So this these kind of ways, like, and there's a horrific amount of it out there. And some, some labs who churn it out are particularly bad for it. And she's been combating this for years and she's getting a lot of flack just for pointing at the obvious, you know, and fair play to her. But this is a whole new ball game in terms of just the quality of the images produced is going to make this exceptionally difficult for anyone other than if you see the raw data and you go and regenerate the stuff yourself, which I don't think you can necessarily. Yeah, this is such a brave new world. It's not a bad one. I mean... I think we should absolutely embrace it. We just need to figure out all of these little things. And it's going to be like Uber, you know? It's going to be, no one will know how to handle it for a long time to come. And then, you know, maybe after a few years of bringing laws and all, all, all that. But it's actually quite funny because there, at the moment, there's a lot of uh, people calling for laws to be brought in to limit AI and all of this. But the people calling for it are basically the ones who are in the industry and haven't caught up and they're the outsiders and they basically want to pause so that they can catch up, which isn't really, you know, about limiting AI. It's about giving them time to, you know, get up to speed and having a level playing field. And that's a very different thing. You know, that's, that's for pure commercial gain on their end. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's let's tie that in with, I guess, your fourth point that that GPT gave you, 
risks and benefits of AI-assisted research publishing. Anyway, yeah. risks and benefits of uh, AI and publishing. Well, the big risk is potential for plagiarism uh, that you don't even know about because you didn't write the stuff. A, uh, an AI has generated for you and you may be ripping it off without realizing it. So you have to be very careful, but also biases. And we've seen time and time again, like uh, with, with these models, that they have implicit biases because they're pulling in information from what's out there in the web. And, you know, obviously Reddit and probably 4chan and, and Twitter and places like that, you know, are probably seeding this. And so you'll, I'm quite sure you'll get things like, you know, white supremacy and you'll get misogyny and all these different things that are underlying there, you know, like, I don't know, for example, if you say, give me a scientist in a white lab coat, it, it'll probably give you a man, you know, or give me a professor. And, and there's all these biases built in which don't necessarily reflect reality, but we have to be super, super careful about it, you know? Yeah, I remember when GPT came out, the internet basically revived all these stories about Microsoft's tests. Do you remember that? So they put out a, a Twitter AI, like it was at least a few years ago, maybe it was five years ago. And like it became like a Nazi within 24 hours and they just shut it down immediately. Yeah, we're quite lucky ChatGPT hasn't become an extremist in that time, but it could be under the hood, you know, it, like we don't know uh, what, what the biases are within it. Yeah. Which is terrifying. Yeah, so I mean, when you're publishing or you're doing something else like, it you're not gonna you're gonna stop yourself if it puts in any kind of extremism but like who knows what what kind of insidious or like sleeper kind of bias you're you're getting in there yeah i mean and often it's the the fringes are the most vocal about things you know if you consider say the the fragmented political situation in the united states it's you know the fringes are the loudest and it's the the middle that are kind of quiet and they're the ones generating all the content. And it could very quickly become, you know, like it wouldn't take much for an AI bot to go to those fringes rather than the kind of middle ground where, where most people live. Yeah, do you have any um, real examples in the paper for that? I don't know if I saw that. Would it be nice to, to tie that back into bioinformatics? Oh, I don't. But what I do have is an exam is examples of using for coding, right? So I was writing some bioinformatics software today and it's great, but it's got some old ways of doing things. So I was using a Pandas data frames and it's basically because it's ingested a lot of stuff, some, some libraries and methods have been deprecated and ways of working have been deprecated, but it still uses the old ways and it still suggests them time and time again. And you're like, I know this is not correct because it throws a huge big warning and it crashes every time. And so you have to be careful because it, it, it's effectively biased towards a way of working because that's the way it used to work. But now time has moved on, APIs have moved on and, and libraries have moved on and things have changed, but it hasn't caught up. So that's just something to be aware of, you know, just because it's a consensus doesn't mean it's correct. Yeah, so it could be for your, for example, if you're writing a paper, then if you are citing a whole bunch of things, then all your citations are going to be biased towards things before 2021, and you won't have any new research. 
Absolutely. No, I'm sure that's going to change, you know, because they'll update the model and, uh, you know, it, it's without a doubt that's going to happen with new uh, information. But it is a, a very interesting thing, you know, just because a lot of people say something doesn't mean it's the right way to do it. And it's certainly rapidly changing areas like mathematics. So if you think, say, I don't know, to take nanopore, right? Base calling is changing all the time and it's rapidly improving all the time. And you, what you wouldn't want is to use a method, which assumes an error model from a few years ago, because, you know, there's a big difference between having an error rate of, or an accuracy rate of 90% versus 98%. You know, you, you make very different judgment calls based on that. So this this paper came on the heels of a of a hackathon, and you have two other co-authors. Did did you did they have any other insights that you think that they would have wanted to say? Yeah, well, so one of the co-authors is uh, Nick Tumulty, who is also my wife, and she is director of the library of the London School of Economics, which is like uh, a big university here in London, and. She also is a managing director of a of their press. Obviously, it's a nonprofit press, so she has a, a little bit of an interest in in the kind of open research and I guess the future of information and research and academic research and learning, and also in publishing. So yeah, it's kind of an interesting angle that she she brought in on on the paper, particularly around. She's very much more on the ethics, like what the hell do we do? because this is a minefield, whereas I'm like, ah, yeah, it's grand. I'm using, I'm going to use everything where she's like, well, you know, where, what source is it coming from? We need to know, because if you don't know where it's come from, then it, that's, you know, a huge challenge. You have to know what you're, you, you know, it's all based on. So she's a little bit more cautious on it. And the, you know, around the fact that we need a lot more policies and procedures and we need to really nail this down because it's going to cause a whole heap of problems. And then Sam Shepard is the last author and he, well, last author bar ChatGPT. So Sam is the editor-in-chief currently of Microbiogenomics, which is like my favorite journal. And I think I've, I've got more papers in that than in any other journal. So it's, you know, it's, it's clearly a winner there. And that's published by the Microbial Society, which is obviously a, a society journal. And yeah, he, he's coming at it from a totally different angle, which is, you know, editor of a journal. He's also an academic so editor of a journal. And basically, we're going to have to deal with this because people are going to be submitting papers with ChatGPT, whether you like it or not. And again, that's a whole different ball game, and changes how we operate. And you, if you can try and pretend it doesn't exist, but the reality is it does. And you have to actually uh, cater for it. And in some manner, you have to make things clear. You can say ban it outright, but the people still use it anyway. Is is that bad or not? Or is it? You know, if I use it just to improve my language because I don't speak English as a native speaker. Actually, I am a native speaker. If I don't speak English very well or, or write English very well, you know, is it a bad thing just to tidy things up? Well, maybe not, I don't think. Or just expand on things or just to kind of restructure things. Those aren't bad uses and people do employ people to like scientific writers to check their work who do that kind of stuff and they don't get authorship. So a lot of interesting things to consider. And I 
it's going to be, I think the technology is going to move much faster than we can actually put policies and procedures in place to deal with it. I think that's a, probably a good conclusion there. Well done on your paper. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at microbinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.